Anyway, Mark chapter uh, 1, uh, we're going to be looking at two very familiar stories today. If, you're, if your life in church goes back a long, 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 long way, then somewhere these stories showed up on flannel graph, you know? <laughs> For those of you who don't know, it's a highly technological teaching method. Um, Anyway, it's a story about the leper who comes to Jesus for for cleansing and the story about the paralytic man who's lowered down on a mat in front of Jesus. And uh, those stories are kind of etched, at least the particulars of the story are etched in our mind. My hope is is it will interrupt what you know about the story and maybe make some points that uh, the Spirit wants to to press on us. Uh, Before we get into the text, though, I want to go back to big picture. I always feel the burden when we're talking about narratives, not not to forget that these aren't just a random selection of stories just kind of floating out there, but that they fit together in a context that helps us understand what the Spirit of God is doing through through this one narrative called Mark. And so let me remind you of what we read the very first week we got together, the very first verse we looked at in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, where Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the biggest statement ever. And so therefore, every story he tells, every event we read is to authenticate that point. Mark is proving that reality in these stories. So remember that. The other thing that is interesting is is the kind of the reason why Jesus is doing what he's doing. Um, we have seen, and we will see over and over again, many, many miraculous events. In fact, Mark records more of his miracle work than the other gospel writers and, and doesn't share as much of the teaching. And so you could make the mistake of thinking that this, this narrative is specifically about the events, and it's way more than that. In fact, we saw it last week when Tyler was teaching in verse 38. These are Jesus' word. When he's talking about going from town to town, he says that I might preach there also for this is the very reason why I came. Jesus came to preach a message, a good news story about sin clearly, but a savior for sin and forgiveness available to sinners who repent of their sin. That is the story of the gospel writer here. And it's a special message. In fact, there is not a better preacher that's ever seen the earth than Jesus. In fact, people who hear his teaching talk about amazement. And that we saw in chapter one, verses, uh, verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. Verse 27, they were all amazed. In fact, they said, this is a new teaching. New authority. We never heard anything like this. And so that's the primary reason why Jesus came is to, to deliver the good news to, to people. But th- there's another part of kind of preparing ourselves for narratives like this I want to give you. And that is it's an interpretive thought. Um, most of the time I would tell you and encourage you, exhort you to kind of avoid spiritualizing a text, meaning write yourself in the story. Okay. Uh, you want to just let the story speak for itself. Although the gospels and the miracles are used by Jesus himself to tell parable stories. Stories that illustrate spiritual truth. For, for instance, let me give you an example. When Jesus heals the blind, it's also a demonstration to us about our spiritual blindness and how Jesus and the gospel can open our blind eyes to see. When, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's a true story. It really, really happened, but it also is a reminder to us of our dead condition in sin that Jesus has to raise us up from, right? When Jesus is with his disciples and he calms the storm, you can make the direct connection that there are storms, really, there are storms, and that if there's going to be peace ever, it's because Jesus offers peace. He's feeding the 5,000 bread, and he makes a point to talk about the bread, that he is the bread of life. All of these stories are pointing to pictures, spiritual pictures 
for us. And so, yeah, they're true, and yeah, they're real, but we need to draw the line. And hopefully at the end of this sermon, we'll do that today. There's one last thing to give you before we get on, and that is, um, I think the last time I taught, a couple of weeks ago, I left you with a question. Well, actually, I dared you to do something. Do you remember what it was? I dared you to ask God to confront your version of Christianity. You guys remember that? Now, I have no idea if you took a dare or not. That's not really that important, I suppose, um, that you did what I asked you to do, but, but you're going to find the, the kind of the challenge even in the narratives we look at today. So you can't escape it. Constantly, over and over again, Jesus is going to, by story and by example, kind of confront us, Christian, about our version of taking Jesus. What version do we want? And that's a sneaky little thing that's hard to be honest about, to be honest, right? And so we're going to see that today, um, the difference between maybe the popular version of following Christ, getting something from him, and then the faithful one, the one that looks like I want him to be the Lord. And that'll be the contrast compare that I'll leave you with today. So uh, we're going to do this. Simple as I can keep it, I'm simply going to read the stories by themselves, make some observations that maybe or may not, you might not know that are kind of hidden maybe between the lines. And then at the end, I'm going to wrap up all of the applications, things that I think are spiritual connections to what's happening in these narratives, okay? So let's read the first story in verse 40 of chapter 1. It's the story of Jesus cleansing the, the leper. So here's what it says. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and so to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in, a, in the desolate places, and people were coming to him from every, from every quarter. Hey, before we get into this, let's pray, and, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to kind of open our mind's eye to this truth. God, this is your word. These are your stories. This is the, the actual events of our Savior and so I do pray for submissive hearts that we would uh, submit to what he says to us. God, you'd open the, uh, our understanding and our mind's eye to understand exactly what is happening here. And I pray that we're comforted by this good news that Jesus came to give his life for. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to do this. I'm going to point out five unusual events in both these stories. So if you're a note taker, this might help you. Here's the first thing I find extremely unusual in this story. And that is that the leper came to Jesus. First five words, six words in verse 40. Now, um, no doubt that Jesus uh, and his popularity was growing. No doubt that uh, Jesus healing uh, was getting a reputation. In fact, Matthew says, and I, I don't know if this is true or you can, you know, kind of anchor this um, in your heart, but he says that he was healing everyone. Um, I'm not certain everyone got healed, but I know that most everyone got healed at least. The, the reputation of blind and sick and crippled and infirmed, it's overwhelming of what he's doing. So the fact that people would search, search him out and find him like this leper is no surprise here for his miracle and work. And I imagine that there's now hope in the heart of a hopeless one going, well, maybe 
I'm, I'm hearing the story about what he's doing. And, and maybe there's a little courage too because we'll see in just a second, these uh, lepers, they had a serious social problem. And so to even kind of engage with another person was a pretty um, aggressive thing to do. But nevertheless, here in a little bit of hope and courage, he, and better said, plows his way to Jesus. Okay, this is not like a sheepish walk up and go, hey, um, just so you know, there's a leper over here that'd like to chat. No, the, the kind of the aggressive move by this leper into the scenario that Jesus is in right now is kind of what's implied here. Luke in chapter 5 talks about this same man and says he was covered with leprosy. So it was obvious. This guy had a serious problem and everybody knew it. So when he walks in to the event that Jesus is at, it's scandalous because lepers didn't do that. Um, and so we're going to get to that part, the physical part of this in a little bit. But let me talk about the social one. As equally as bad as the, the kind of the physical disfigurement, there was a kind of social outcast part to this story. Uh, I read this in R.K. Harrison's commentary on Leviticus, which Leviticus in chapter 14 deals with the regulations to those who have skin diseases or leprosy as it was called and how it affected them in their relationships. Now listen to this. A diagnosis of leprosy was as much a death sentence to ancient Israelites as news about advanced cancer would be to a modern patient. So now you get the, get the level of weight in this. The diagnostic guidelines furnished for the priest's position would prevent him from bringing unnecessary sorrow and hardship to his countrymen, while at the same time ensuring the health of all the community. Once a man was branded as a leopard, he had to adopt the posture of a mourner by tearing his clothes, allowing his hair to become unkempt, covering his beard and mustache, and crying unclean everywhere he went. He had to live outside the camp or in a company of other lepers, but his existence was nothing more than a living death. Unless there was a quick remission of the disease, the victim of clinical leprosy knew that his condition would be of lengthy duration and that his loathsome nature would prohibit significant content with society. Most of all, the leper would be cut off from spiritual fellowship with a covenant people and in a real sense would be without hope and without God in the world. Nobody and no God. Israel's connection to God was based on all these laws and all these commands, all this temple worship, all these specific things that God said you must do and he could no longer do it. He was on the outside looking in, in every category. So just imagine the isolation and the humiliation of walking around saying to everyone all the time, I'm unclean. You announce your presence before you get there. And everyone's natural and right and good biblical response is to go the other way from you. That's his condition. Totally ostracized from society. They were to stay 150 feet um, upwind from other people. Downwind they could stay six feet from. So the best they ever had it with another person was two yards. Like over there. It's as close as I could get to another person. So the fact that this man is plowing his way to Jesus is fairly unusual. The second thing I find unusual in this is, is verse 41 is that Jesus actually would touch him. That's an unusual thing here. Um, that meant that Jesus would be pronounced unclean as well. Anything that touched something unclean would have to be ceremonially kind of reestablishes clean. If a, if a leper stuck his head into a house, the house became unclean. This thing was really rigid and really specific. But it's interesting about the touch that's mentioned here that the Bible tells us here that he was filled with compassion. There was a, an emotional touch 
in, involved in this. In fact, the word filled refers to visceral reaction. In other words, Jesus felt it in his gut. When this man came up, there was some kind of reaction, some kind of burden he felt. Most of you somewhere in your life, whether it was for your child or your parents or whatever, have felt that gut reaction to someone's need and inability, right? You feel it deeply. That's what's going on with Jesus. In spite of all the cultural, religious, and legal taboos, Jesus' compassion overtakes him, and he reaches out, and he touches him. And even that phrase is way more than just emotional. It's very, very physical. In fact, some writers say it expresses more than just kind of a glancing blow like you might do on an elbow. It, It kind of has the idea of reaching out and grabbing hold of someone. So I'm not saying that he gave him a big hug and a sloppy, wet kiss. I'm just saying that somehow the version of him touching him would have been scandalous. Because it wasn't a brush up. It wasn't an accident. He grabbed hold of this man to communicate his emotion and his passion for this man's condition. You should ask a question. Why would he do something like that? And we're going to make all these parallels to our own life. But the obvious one is that there was a love for this man. Total stranger. Jesus kind of felt it. Felt it deeply. He wanted to communicate. And doesn't a touch communicate? like something you understand. You know, occasionally I'll be having conversations with people. I had one the other day, I think yesterday, with my son, and he was talking about some things that were concerning him and and things that were troubling him. And it was so natural for me to go, you know what I mean? I didn't say a lot, but that was trying to mean a lot, you know? Like, dude, I'm here with you. And I, I get it. I get it's heavy, and I get that it's a concern, and maybe it was that, maybe that and, and even more. And I think it's an amazing truth that Jesus does love in such a radical, radical way someone who hasn't felt it for possibly years. Because of the contamination and the uncleanliness of this disease that meant his wife, probably divorced, children, gone, friends, family, all those people that normally played a role in your life, couldn't see him, hasn't touched people in possibly years. No one ever touched him. I, I just... As much as it would have been scandalous to watch Jesus do the touching, it probably rocked this guy more to be touched. I haven't been touched in forever. Well, who, who's doing that? This man cares. I came for healing and he's reaching out to me, which is a, a very unusual event. So there's cultural and there's personal shock going on here. Here's the third thing I find unusual in this story, and that is that the, the miracle itself, that should stand out to you. Jesus just simply says, I'm willing, be clean. And he is immediately clean. Sudden and complete. By the way, just a little offering for future reference. That's how Jesus heals, by the way. There's no mystery when Jesus shows up and does something like that. When God heals somebody, they're healed. No surprises. In, in 19, uh, I hear, I read this, so it's got to be true. In 1982, I heard that they uh, developed a cure for what we know as leprosy. And the cure was that it would just stop the progression of Kind of the body cancer, you know? But here's what it couldn't do. It could not reverse the effects of the disease. It could just stop its progression. Now, if you know anything or seen any pictures of lepers, there's a fairly significant um, scarring. There's an effect, right? And as much as our doctors have been good and precise in developing a cure for the ongoing progression, they can't fix what it did. And so even, even John MacArthur says it this way, that Jesus didn't have those kinds of limitations. For instance, if the man's forehead was worn away by, by this disease, if his face had been disfigured, all of that disappeared in that very 
moment. If his eyes were sunken and even absent, they reappeared freshly freshly created. If his eyelashes, eyebrows were gone, they were suddenly back. If his bloody limbs that were worn off, if his throat had been scarred, if his fingers and toes were curled up like claws and worn away, all of that was instantly restored, instantly healed. That's amazing. That's an amazing truth. And as soon as all that event happens, you'd think Jesus would let it breathe a little bit. Big day for the leper. Immediately, Mark tells us that Jesus then sternly charges him. Right? Isn't that what it says in verse 43? It's interesting what that word, uh, the word of, in Greek for that sternly charge, it means snorting. Um, not like snorting coke. Not that I've ever done that. I haven't. But um, um, it means to flare your nostrils. It's, a, it's, a, it's trying to paint a picture of aggression. It's, it's what you would do if you were trying to get your point across and be intense about something. Jesus, as soon as he heals and leans into the guy and says, okay, you do what I tell you to do. And you go and show yourself to the priest, as you should do. He wasn't just kind of squishy and, hey, when you get some time, I know it's a big day and you might want to. He got really into it, okay? It's a forceful command. That's the point, an aggressive command. And you might ask, why? Why in the middle of this beautiful picture? Why would Jesus give this strong of a warning? Let me give you a couple of options. Some or all may be true. The law was very, very clear, Leviticus 14, how a leper or someone with a skin disease could be pronounced clean and then make their way back into the social environment. It had to be precise, exactly like this. One writer said it this way, since it was a priestly duty to ensure the ritual cleanness of Israel, inspection of alleged leprosy cases played an important role in a priest's work. If a clean bill of health were rendered and certified in writing, the healed person, now watch this, this is what they had to do. The healed person was instructed to present two birds, one of which was killed at the temple in Jerusalem. Now this guy's 70 some miles away from there. And the other bird was to be dipped in the blood of the slain bird and then released. There's a lot of symbolism here we don't have time to teach, but, but the next thing they had to do was after a waiting period of eight days, the healed person further brought to the priest three lambs, one for a sin offering, one for a guilt offering, and one for a whole offering. And after all of that, the priest would say, okay, you're clean, back in. And I think one of the reasons why Jesus is stern with him and says, you go do this, is because Jesus is honoring the Mosaic law. You, you, you're, you need to do it Right? We're not just avoiding these things because you have a great day. Do what God said. So that's one of the reasons. Another reason why Jesus was stern with him is because Jesus wanted the religious leaders to have to deal with his miracle. They were constantly looking to discredit him and say it was for some other reason. Eventually, we see they accuse these miracles. They attribute it to Satan, which is the sin that's unforgivable, by the way. And so Jesus says, you go back, keep your mouth shut. You go back and get pronounced clean. Then they got to deal with this. You get the point? So this would create a kind of a a crisis for them. Some explaining to have to be done. I think this this command was meant to provide Jesus with freedom to do what he came to do, to preach and to come and to go as he pleased. But you know at the end of the story what happens is he can't go there anymore. He's limited and he's trapped. And so there was a real pragmatic reason for that. And I think there's a possible another reason. I think Jesus knew this man's heart. We're going to see this in the next story, that Jesus is very good at reading people's hearts and motives, and he knew this guy's heart, and that he knew this guy wasn't there to follow Jesus. He was there for what he could get. Now, I'm sitting on the outside of the story going, I don't blame him. He's got leprosy. I don't blame him that he wanted to be healed, but he wasn't there for Jesus. 
And I think Jesus knew that, and so there begins the test. Here's the test of authority. Go do what I said. Okay? There's a fourth thing that I think is unusual in this event that's unusual in this, is that man's reaction to this wonderful miracle. Total disregard for what Jesus commanded him to do. You would think, just put yourself in that position, years of being ostracized and physically mangled. Immediately, it's all new. And you couldn't obey even for a day, an hour, half hour, minute, something. Give me something. Nope. Nothing. Immediately he went out and did the exact opposite of what the master told him to do. That's going to come into play in just a little bit, by the way. Last unusual thing that happens in this story is that there's a wonderful, and you've got to read between the lines to see this, and that is there's this, this um, trading of places. Leper ostracized, no social contact, no fellowship, outside looking in. As soon as this event is over with, the text tells us that Jesus no longer could come into public places. You got the, you got the leper who's partying up, and it's show and tell, look, look, my fingers are back. It's a wonderful day. And Jesus can't come in and do what he came to do to preach. Traded places. I think that's an interesting observation. Now, let me get to the second story, and then we're going to wrap all this up and make a kind of a so what for us. It's the story of Jesus healing the paralytic. So let's read it. First 12 verses of chapter 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word. And they came bringing to him paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, Or to say, rise up, uh, take up your bed, and and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this before. No surprise there, right? Let me pick this apart a little bit. Um, Before I do, let's just tell you where Jesus is. Jesus is back at his home base, his favorite place to go. Many writers would suggest he's back at Peter's house, and he's preaching. He's doing what he came to do, verse 38 says. And people are crowding in. It is so packed there's no room in the house or outside the house. They're kind of staring in the windows, staring in the door, and that's no surprise there. Not unusual when you're known for your ability to heal. So... Jesus is sitting there teaching. But here's the first thing that's unusual. It's verse 4. They removed the roof above them. Now, that's a little odd, to be honest. Um, it's, it's one thing um, if your friends really care about you and you really care about you and you want to get healed and you go, hey, could we interrupt the speech a little bit? Like, could we, excuse me, but do you think you have time? These guys were persistent. Um, and to chop a hole in the roof is pretty pretty significant moment. I grew up in uh, several years in Santa Fe, New Mexico. 
And Santa Fe has a kind of a city law that says you can only build Vega-style buildings. Vegas are, you know, pine logs. They set a flat roof, and they put, you know, cross beams on that, and then they put their, now I guess they just put a regular roofing on it. But back in the day, they would put just different thicket and branches or whatever. In this day, here we are in Capernaum, it was the same kind of thing. Timbers laid crossways with branches laid across that with then some kind of, I don't know, weeds or whatever as another layer. And then they would throw a foot of dirt on that. Even in the spring, they say that grass would grow on the top of the roofs. It would be two feet thick. So this is not just move a couple shingles, wave at Jesus, and lower the guy down. This is chopping, and this is hacking, and this is moving in front of a crowd. It would be very, very strange and very, very um, aggressive. But I think there's a couple thoughts happening here. One is the belief is pretty big that Jesus could do something about it. And the other thing is the care and the concern for their brother, pretty big, that they would be embarrassed to kind of chop through a, a sermon, right? So anyway, that's what's going on. Second thing I think is interesting in this story is that Jesus, in verse 5, sees their faith. Now, yes, you could look at them lowering a paralytic on a mat after a hole they chopped in the roof and go, boy, they must really believe in this thing. But I believe there's way more than just the obvious what you see going on here. Jesus sees the heart. And we're going to see that when he confronts these religious scribes. Something far more than the faith to walk is happening with this man. You got to get this. There is a heart change happening, and that's why the next thing Jesus says to the man is so significantly odd for his need as we perceive it. There's something far more greater happening, which is verse 5. This is the other unusual thing. Instead of saying, get up, man. I'm preaching. (laughs) Walk and get out of here so I can finish my job. He says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Something far more great than the classic Jewish belief that sickness was a direct result of sin. You see, in their minds, you were crippled because you had done something, or someone close to you had done something. Isn't that what happened in John chapter 9 when Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and they look over and see a blind man, and they look at Jesus and say, Jesus, tell us who sinned. Was it him or was it his parents? Because in their mind, there's no way he's crippled without it. There's no way he's blind without it. And so there's that perspective in this. And yet there's something so much more personal in that statement, son, your sins are forgiven, than just the obvious dealing with the cultural thought. In fact, uh, James Edward, in his commentary, The Gospel According to Mark, said this about the personalness of the statement to this man. Your sins appears to speak to specific sins rather than the general condition of sin. It appears possible that Jesus' address to the paralytic reflects knowledge of his particular sins and their relationship to his paralysis. There's nothing more distinctive of a person than his or her sins. Jesus thus addresses the paralytic at the deepest level of his sins, which may be particularly appropriate lest the paralytic think the faith of his friends is an acceptable substitute for his own response to Jesus. Jesus, clearly we know this, the son of God, the wise discerning one, looks this man in his heart and addresses his greatest need, which wasn't walking. It was his sin condition. And it's what the scribes heard that infuriated them. And it's what convinced them that Jesus was a blasphemer. Because what they said was, and they're right, dead right, 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Is that a true statement, church? Of course it is. These guys aren't wrong. They're right. The problem is when they look at Jesus, they go, well, you're not him. They can't see him as God. And by the way, this is how we've earned our forgiveness. We've worked for it. So there's a method to how we get right with God. We become religious and we do good things and we stop this and start that and we go to the temple and we carry around these burdens and when we're impressive horizontally to each other, then we've earned our forgiveness. And that's not how the text reads for me. They, they understood all these scriptures in Exodus 34 that God is the one who forgives iniquity. Psalm 103 that he's the one who forgives all of your sins and heals all of your diseases. In Isaiah 43, he's the one who blots out your transgressions. They're right. Only God can do that. But they can't see Jesus as God. And it can't come from a word. It has to come from work. There's a fourth thing that I think is very interesting here. So just like Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic, he now sees the scribe's heart. Verses 8 and 10. He sees what's in there. He says immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you ask, why, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? See, Jesus knew what was going on here too. He knew that their stubborn refusal to believe was, was the one that, or, or the thought that was causing this judgment of blasphemy. And so he poses the ultimate question, which is easier. Sounds like a trick question, doesn't it? Because what's easier is to say your sins are forgiven, because who would know? Just do that. It's exactly what he did. What's easier is just to say your sins are forgiven. And by the way, if the scribes, and they did, held the same kind of belief that all the good Jewish people would, that if you're a sick person, it's a direct result of sin, then in their stage of life, forgiveness had to happen before healing. So how do you explain all these people getting healed? You got a problem. They're all around. Matthew says everyone's getting healed. Maybe they were there when the leper got clean. Maybe he, they saw his fingers grow back. They got a problem. If healing is directly resulted to forgiveness received, then what do they do? You understand that? And so Jesus just jumps to the chase and says, okay, here's, let's deal with this so that you might know. So that you know that I have authority, get up. Get up and walk. And so he does the miraculous. And I don't want to just play off this. We assume every time we read a story about Jesus, something miraculous is going to happen. But you've got to get your head around this, church. This crippled man, for how many years? Who knows? How many, how many years his friends drug him around on a pallet? He was known as the crippled man. Crippled people begged for existence. They didn't work for their existence. He was a well-known, incapable man. So for him to stand up after all those years and all the muscles that had atrophied and all the joints that had curled up, everything restored straight and fresh, and he gets up and walks out, you don't think they were a gasp? Of course they were. And that's exactly why the text tells us that they said, we've never seen anything like this before. That's an unusual event, wouldn't you agree? And those are great, wonderful stories, and they're perfect, but if we're going to use that kind of interpretive freedom I think we have in stories like this, we better drag those stories to our world. Because I'm so happy he healed the paralytic, and I'm so happy the leper's cleansed, but what about me? What does this have to do with us? I think out of all the pictures that God could use to describe the problem that we all have, leprosy is the perfect story. It's the greatest illustration. 
There's a, let me describe to you the disease as they know it today. It's called um, Hansen's disease. And it's important to note that Hansen's disease, as it's known today, is not a rotting of the flesh that you think of. I mean, I think that's how I always understood it, that you catch some kind of bug and the bug, you know, um, just eats away your flesh. That's not what it is. Um, nor are the outward physical deformities imposed by the disease. In recent years, the research of Dr. Paul Brand and others have proven that this disfigurement associated with Hansen's disease comes solely, now get this, solely because the body's warning system of pain is destroyed. The disease acts like an anesthetic, bringing numbness to the extremities as well as to ears, eyes, and nose. The devastation that follows comes from such incidents as reaching one's hand into a charcoal fire to retrieve a drop potato, or washing one's face with scalding water, or gripping a tool so tightly that the hands become traumatized and even stump-like. One of the stories that doctor doing his research uh, even wrote was uh, he had a clinic and there was a couple of sheds that had locks on them and for some reason one lock was really rigid and he was with one of the boys, one of the leper boys in the community and he couldn't get the key to unlock the door and so the little boy said, let me try and he just like real quick just opened the door. He just popped open and the doctor could not believe that his strength couldn't beat this leper kid and finally he noticed blood running out of the kid's hand. He had gashed his hand to the bone because he couldn't feel the the sharpness of the key or the tension in the hand, he just did it. Now stop for a second, okay? Let's jump this chasm. If, if leprosy or Hansen's disease is what destroys your ability to feel, sin and the deadness that it provides distorts our ability to perceive God and good and right and pure. It makes me think the things that I see are the things that are going to make me happy. It's absolutely the, what convinces me to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. Sin does that. It is the, uh, it is the consequence to our actions. It's, it's this. Church, just get this very carefully. I'm going to have to spend some time on this. Um, there aren't really any victims because we're responsible for our own pain. Now, I say that with some gentleness because I know that all of us, probably everyone in here, has a list of things that others have done to us. And say, wait a minute, I'm a victim. But what I'm trying to say to you, even your ability or inability to respond to someone who sins against you is a depiction of the numbness of sin. You can't forgive like Jesus automatically. You can't just let it go and love your enemy. That's not capable. You're not capable of that apart from the cross, are you? Even when we've been sinned against, our demonstration of how to cope tells us that we're numb, we're dead and unresponsive. I don't have within me ability to sort this out, just like leprosy. Ephesians 2 says we're dead in our transgressions and sin. Leprosy, um, the leprosy of sin, wants to say, that maybe at sometimes, there's nothing wrong with you, right? It lies to you. It numbs you. It's the aesthetic. There's nothing wrong with you. You're like everybody else. Or... When your leper stands in front of the mirror, if God does that, sinfully speaking, we stand in front of the mirror and we see all the junk in our lives, we, we believe the other lie, that it's too far gone. I can't, there's nobody that can fix this. I've done too much. I've hurt too many. I struggle too much. Some, somehow, either I'm believing a lie that it's not real and there's no God and I don't have to fix it or it's too bad to, to solve it's a perfect picture of sin and its effects on us. I think the touch of Jesus is the perfect picture of, of sin's cure. 
And, and the picture is the incarnation. And that might be a big word for you, but the incarnation simply means God come in the flesh. God became one of us. God came as a man to pay himself back for man's rebellion, to be an innocent sacrifice that would satisfy God's righteous standard for all time and eternity. Right? He put his perfect life on our rotten life. Do you see that? We talk about the righteous robes of Jesus, and it's just a picture to paint this reality, this spiritual reality, that in our ugliness and our brokenness, apart from any Savior, God sees everything, every action and every motive of the heart. But faith in Christ means that we're covered in righteousness, not of our own, and so God doesn't see all those scars or all those tendencies anymore. He sees his son, Jesus, and that's why you and I are as holy as Jesus is holy. That's why God is never going to condemn his church again, because he doesn't measure us based on what we do or don't do. He measures us based on what Jesus has done for us. Amen? A total covering. Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of Jesus. The touch of Christ. If you're sitting here and you're shaking your head, you sang some songs, you uh, amen anywhere in you, then you're declaring this. You're declaring this. The touch of Jesus healed you of of the leprosy of sin, the numbness of sin, the sorting out your life on your own. So, just like the leper, and I want you to hear this, Jesus is not turned off by your mess, and he's not turned off by the ugliness of your life or the secrets you think you keep or the struggles you think you have. He is not turned off by you, not one bit. He reaches out in his scandalous, loving fashion, and he puts his arm on you and makes you son and daughter, in spite of wherever you've been, in spite of your struggles. Religion has done so much damage to our understanding of that and how God feels about us because religion says just the opposite. You better clean yourself up before you come in here. He's God after all. You better present yourself. You better be good enough. You better not do that anymore or, or think this way some. And, and none, of, none of that could be farther from the truth. Religion says God can't handle your dirt, but Jesus came for your dirt. He understands it. He came to love you, and he understands how sin has numbed our understanding of him. A couple other things, and we're done. The leper is a great picture for why some come to Jesus. Now, hang in here with me, okay? Did the leper get healed? The answer is yes. Just, uh, I did a very poor job telling this story. <laughs> did the leper obey? Some people come to Jesus for the same thing. I, I, want, I want to be better. I want to feel better. God, I want you to sort things out. I, I want you to, I would love morality because at least morality lets me measure myself to people and I'll feel better about myself because I'm massively spiritual insecurity. I have all these problems and if I try harder and, and God, you give me some benefits, that'd be awesome. And the leper wanted, I believe, wanted the blessings of, of Jesus but not the master's touch, didn't want to follow him. That's why it didn't last a minute. A couple other things. The paralytic is a perfect reminder that physical miracles don't change people's hearts. Spiritual miracles do. And, and I just, you need to know something here, okay? Contrast and compare these two stories. Both got healed, right? 
Yeah, okay. We're working on this. Both got healed. Jesus sees the faith that he's conjured in the heart of the paralytic unto salvation and belief didn't happen for the leper. And you would think, and this has always been an accusation, at least for an unbeliever towards God. God, if you would just show up and do something crazy good, like do some miracle that's undeniable, then I'll believe in you. And you haven't ever read the Bible if you think you need that. Because over and over and over again in the scriptures, God's people have seen amazing things and build golden calves to worship. Physical miracles don't, don't do anything. Spiritual ones do. And the greatest miracle of all is when God transforms a heart and grants faith unto salvation. Faith to believe. That's the biggest miracle. More than healings and more than some kind of parting the Red Sea when God dives into a human heart and says, wake up. That's the ultimate miracle. One last thing. The gospel really isn't a story just about what Jesus can do for you. It's about his authority, and you need to own that. Jesus says to those questioning him, so that you might know that I have the authority. (laughs) Rise and walk. That he has the authority to forgive and to rule his people. It's a lordship issue, really. So the question I think we need to leave with is, does he rule you? You see where I said in the beginning, you were coming back to this question. I think the text tells us this question when we dare to ask God to confront our version of Christianity. So here's the question in another way. Does he rule you? Does he rule your money? Does he really? Does he rule your relationships, your family? Does he rule your stresses and does he rule your dreams and your expectations? Now, before you run out of here and think that that somehow because you haven't got it all sorted out that Tim was talking about perfection. I'm not talking about perfection. That at any moment in time in your life, you could look at your story and go, well, I'm not obeying here and I'm not trusting here and so therefore, maybe my salvation is up for grabs. This is not a discussion about perfection. It's a discussion about lordship. And let me try to define what I mean. I'm talking about desire. What do you want from him? What do you want from him? What he can give you? him. He is the prize of everything. Are, are there sonship issues that happen for the church? Yes. But if you could take all that he offered and not have him, you got a problem. Because he's the focal point of time and history. He is the point of heaven. He is the prize of man's heart. We're created in his image, and the only way we're ever going to feel that kind of connection is to have him. If, if you're here, and you love what he gives, but you're not that into him, then you have a lordship issue. Jesus came so that you might know he has authority to rule. So, do you want what he does or who he is? That's a good question to pray about, right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, these stories. How poignant they are. God, I thank you for um, your faithfulness faithfulness to us, to to teach us this thing, to ask us questions. God, we submit to you. We love you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.